Hello everyone, welcome to Antibodies. Today we are here for our 21st buddy sode and we have a guest with us also two of our lovely hosts. First we got uh, Shutonu Kabhar also known as Tanu. Hi everyone. We got Eugenio. Hi everyone. And our guest today is Eric Song. Welcome to the show Eric. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. We're going to discuss some unique aspects about SARS-CoV-2 infections today. So without any more spoilers, Tanu, can you tell us something about our guest? Sure. So today we have with us Eric Song, who is an MD-PhD student at Dr. Akiko Iwasaki's lab at Department of Immunobiology, Yale University. He is the first author of this amazing paper that we are going to discuss today, and it is very critical at this current times. The name of the article is Neuroinvasion of SARS-CoV-2 in Human and Mouse Brain. It's published this year at the Journal of Experimental Medicine. For today's episode, we really wanted to come up with a joke, but we determined that SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 is not a joke at all. <laughs> Hopefully <laughs> so, everybody gets vaccinated <laughs> and we can get outside so that at one point we can joke about SARS-CoV-2 and without without feeling unfair for people who are getting sick. I know, right? Exactly. Uh, Jatin, can you start us with the terminologies for this yes, paper? Yes, before... So there's a lot of terminology. I'll be honest, this paper is more towards... I, I thought this paper was more towards neuroscience than immunology and, and also virology. And I've got a very weak background on on neuro, neuroscience. Uh, I'll, if I am wrong at any point, Eric, feel free to correct me. Also, Eric, what's your background in? Yeah, so that's that's a great question. Um, my background is actually in biomedical engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, so I studied like how we can use different nanoparticles and different drug delivery strategies to overcome tissue barriers like mucosal surfaces and tissues like the brain. Um, From there, um, I moved on to wanting to study more about immunology, but really kind of focusing on the central nervous system and how the immune system in the brain is different than the rest of the body, which is um, the work I was doing in Akiko's lab. And then when SARS-CoV-2 hit, uh, naturally, I was curious about whether how SARS-CoV-2 can affect the brain or not, um, which is how we came up with this project uh, with a really good friend of mine, Cha Zheng, um, who's more of a hardcore neuroscientist than me, but uh, we can we can talk more about that as we go along. Sure. For sure. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of interdisciplinary stuff in this paper, and that's what I love about this paper. Let's go through some terminology for our audience to know before we start discussing the papers. First, organoid. Uh, Eric, how would you define an organoid? Yeah, so an organoid, the way I would always describe it is just like a 3D structure um, of a bunch of cells that are kind of mushed up together. Um, You know, we always think about like organs, right? And organs have a 3D structure to them. It's a a mixture of many different cell types that are making up uh, a 3D kind of functional thing. Um, And similarly, an organoid is trying to be like an organ. Um, So by using stem cells or other techniques, we're trying to recreate that 3D structure instead of having a flat 2D um, cell culture dish. 
is there some kind of scaffold on which the cells will take a shape yeah so that's definitely a strategy that people use to diff- to try to create different organoids um in our case uh you don't need any sort of scaffolding in order to create a brain organoid um so and i think it's you know you can also think about different cells take like a spheroid kind of cultural culture shape right i think how it differs from an organoid really is the diversity of the cells that are present in an organoid and also the size that you can kind of get to by creating an organoid organoids are now so hot in the research there's organoids for virus cultivations there's organoids for uh, studying type 2 diabetes and it's very very com- coming up to be very very popular these days yeah, yeah I, i definitely agree yeah i'll think of it i think it's the closest you can get to in vivo without going in vivo right Yeah, I mean, definitely. Um it's it's a strategy um to try to recreate the in vivo setting as much as possible. Um but as you guys will hear from us, I think talking about the paper, there's still a lot of limitations to organoids, which is why we kind of supplement some of our studies with like mouse models and other things in order to be able to really explore the full gamut of you know, the effects of SARS-CoV-2. Mm. Mm-hmm. And for this study the organoids you've used you're generating them from human induced pluripotent cells to create neuron like cells. Exactly. Um and I think a lot of and most organoids um are usually driven um derived from induced pluripotent stem cells. Um and then people, you know, take either fibroblasts or something common um that's easy to obtain from patients. reverse them back into right pluripotent stem cells and then start differentiating them to a uh, tissue of interest whether that be you know brain in our case but people have made right like retinal organoids people have made kidney organoids many different types of organoids okay the next term we got is neurotropism and to me neurotropism is the ability of something to gravitate towards neuronal cells um would that be accurate i think that's a great uh description i think for me uh personally when i think about neurotropism i think about more about just any cells in the brain so it doesn't have to be neurons particularly uh because i think about the whole organ- uh, organism so it's whether or not uh something can get to anything that's in the brain for me okay okay and so there are several viruses that are already known we're not talking about sars-cov-2 right now but already known to be neurotropic uh, can you give me give us some examples yeah so the most famous of these viruses are you know zika virus right when zika virus was kind of running amok a few years ago um we were seeing a lot of zika virus having big effect on uh, pregnant women and their babies and uh, babies were having microcephaly and other you know neural associated um symptoms so immediately you know people started looking into the neurotropic kind of ability of zika virus uh another really famous one is the herpes virus um and the herpes virus can directly infect neurons and kind of become latent and stay with you for you know decades um and that's another very famous neurotropic virus I think most of the virus which are very much studied 
like encephalitis virus, polio, measles, mumps, as well as, you know, rabies, all of them have uh, tropism towards brain and nervous system. And when yeah. we say neurotropic, does that mean this virus is going to the to the neuronal tissues or anything in the brain separately, or does it mean it's able to infect those cells? Yeah, I think in I'm just thinking about the the viruses that we were talking about. They're all able to you know directly infect neurons. I would say, um, but for example. There have been kind of reported cases of, you know, flu being neurotropic, you know, but in that case, I wouldn't say the flu, they, they def- definitively show that the flu was infecting neurons, but you can kind of still say it's neurotropic. And I think touching upon my previous experiences, I, you know, I was telling you how I studied how to get, to, how to get nanoparticles into the brain. Um, and we would say, you know, they have, neurotropic properties but didn't mean necessarily that it went into neurons it could go into astrocytes it could go into microglia or other you know cell types in the brain so it's going to go through mostly the blood right that's the only route i can think of or is there another no, one rabies goes through muscle tissues to the blood oh to, i mean to the to the, to the nervous system, system. Yes. Yeah. So rabies is very special because it retrogrades, right? It, it infects a neuron that's, you know, peripheral in, in mm-hmm. your like muscle or something. And then it tracks back all the way back to the, the brain itself. Um, you know, herpes kind of does a similar thing. You know, people predict that it can infect a peripheral right nerve and then become uh, latent in the DRG, the do- dorsal root ganglia. And yeah, but the blood is definitely a source. I think a lot of people are looking into that also. What the possible routes of you know entry into the CNS might be? Yeah, that's a mm-hmm. hot topic we can touch upon too. Yeah, because I would think that the blood-brain barrier is not tight enough to stop viruses. Clearly, so ideally, any virus that gets into the blood, in my opinion, should be able to get inside the CNS just by diffusion, right? as blood is flowing everywhere but the cell also needs to be accepted right so that's the part where it comes to susceptible and permissive of the virus yeah i mean that's a good idea i think the brain the blood brain barrier is pretty tight right it doesn't let anything through but in the case of where you're having kind of systemic disease right like SARS-CoV-2 you know people have described cytokine storms and all these different associated right right uh peripheral inflammatory responses, you would definitely expect to see some leakage of the BBB or something like that. Also, you know, there are regions of the brain that are more permeable and always constantly having an exchange with the rest of the body. And people think those sites could be a possible source of viral entry. The okay. most famous one being the choroid plexus. Right. And, and I, I like your idea about the inflammation because it's known that certain cytokines can act on these barrier cells and loosen them up so that immune cells can infiltrate these organs. So yeah, that does make sense that during inflammation, it would be more likely for you to get a virus inside your central nervous system. Okay, Definitely. with that, we can move on to the next term. It's, it's a pretty simple term, viral titer. For me, viral titer is a way to measure 
virus act i don't know if you may measure it as an activity of the virus or the particles in there um i just think of it as a measure of how many are there uh tanu does it have to be active virus or just just have to be particles um the way we measure viral titer is mainly by pfu per ml or tcid 50 per ml uh and they both of those techniques measure the infectious particles only and not all the viruses okay so you're saying when we when we talk about viral titer is usually we're mentioning how many infective units are there yes okay and then we got another term that i don't know am i am i the only one who was hearing it for the first time in their life infarct uh, eric can you tell us about this infarct or infarction yeah so infarct or infarction is you know it it happens in you know different body parts right um and what what we kind of really describe it as and you hear most of it um happening in the heart when you think about heart attacks right myocardial infarction mm-hmm. um this occurs when like the blood supply to the organ or like a certain area of the tissue is blocked um and this is happening because of many different things but usually there's like a blood clot or like an air bubble that occurs um that blocks you know adequate blood supply getting into there and you're not getting enough oxygen and you're getting death of a tissue or a region of okay. a tissue um so in in the brain um you you think about kind of blood blood clots getting into the brain and then um you're getting death of neural tissue in a certain region and that's an infarct and then when you think about that um you're having a stroke basically that's that's what happens um but it's applicable to any any organ any site um and the the reason an infarct can happen is you know countless a clot is just one example mm-hmm. but many different things can cause the infarct itself okay thanks a lot for that and i think with that we can move on to the premise of the paper so let me tell you something that you guys probably already know about covid-19 <laughs> COVID-19 is typically seen as a disease of the lungs as most of the symptoms are respiratory. However, we cannot ignore the fact that there is a subset of COVID-19 patients who have experienced headache, impaired consciousness and more headache. <laughs> Several reports have found viral RNA transcripts and proteins in the central nervous system. Therefore, it is reasonable to think that SARS-CoV-2 should be capable of infecting the cells of the CNS. However, it is challenging to st- study the CNS. And Eric, I'll need your help here. Can you tell us why is it challenging to study the CNS directly in patients? Yeah, I mean there's a there's many reasons for that. Uh one of the main things is just the accessibility of the tissue. You know, every other organ, um we readily take kind of biopsies, we have different tools to look into it, right? We have cameras now that we can look into it. Um and we have a lot of sampling that we can do um whether it's like blood or whatever it is to kind of uh use as a surrogate for what's going on inside the organ. But the central nervous system um is one tissue that we don't normally, right, readily sample. uh when we think about surgeries also you know if you think about brain surgery it's it's kind of a big deal right like people are not going through brain surgery for no reason 
we also have kind of limited techniques in being able to probe or sample the tissues. Um, for example, you know, in any other disease, you, you regularly get blood, right? And when you go to the hospital, you get blood work done. However, although we get blood work done for brain diseases, ultimately we have to get uh, CSF in order to be able to kind of study the brain. Um, and that's a little bit more invasive procedure, right? You have to get a lumbar puncture, right? A spinal tap, as people call it. And that's not normally done. So I think just the nature of the tissue and its accessibility make it really hard to study. And for SARS-CoV-2 specifically, um, you, you discussed that, you know, there's impaired consciousness or headache or whatever the symptom might be. And the common one being kind of loss of smell, right? In a lot of patients. But these are such diverse range of symptoms and they all associate with the central nervous system but i would i think what is happening is that they are kind of different you know pathological kind of processes that's driving to each of these symptoms and maybe it's not the same kind of SARS-CoV-2 doing all three um, things in the same location so mm -hmm. I think the diversity of the disease and definitely the accessibility of the tissue makes it difficult to study. Okay. And how do you come up with this hypothesis that we, we, we should go and look for something, some, something about SARS-CoV-2 in the brain? Yeah. So that happened as soon as, you know, SARS-CoV-2 hit and then we were hearing about this loss of smell, you know, the headaches. Naturally, I was just wondering, uh, can the central nervous system have anything to do with it? Um, and my classmate, Cha Zhang, um, he actually studies, you know, human brain organoids for his PhD. And we were just talking about it, um, just grabbing coffee one day, like, what if we just try to infect these, you know, like people have done it for Zika. Um, we should just try it right now. And then we got his organoids that he's been growing for three months. And then we just took him to the BSL-3 facility and then infected him. And we saw very shockingly, a, a, a lot of SARS-CoV-2 staining. And from that point on, we decided to take the project actually a little bit more seriously and mm -hmm. continue on. So this was, whatever you told me, this was before you told your PI about this idea or afterwards? <laughs> we we briefly mentioned it. We definitely mentioned it, um, but it it wasn't. Um, yeah, it wasn't a full project yet. And that, that's uh, it's a pretty cool project now. I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bring it coming back to the paper. The objective of the work. There are several questions that the authors are interested in. Some of them include: Can this virus infect the cells of the CNS? And if it does, which cells are infected by the virus? What kind of receptor is the virus using to infect the CNS cells? And is there a humoral immune response in the CNS? If so, what else? So there's a lot of questions that are leading from the viral infection of the CNS. And to answer these questions, the authors use two models. An in vitro organoid model that we have discussed so far and a SARS-CoV-2 mouse model. With that, we can dive a little deeper into the paper. So, uh, Eugenio, I I'll let you start with the results section. Sure, thank you. So the first thing the authors did was to get a human iPS cells to differentiate into four brain-specific neural progenitor cells and infect them with SARS-CoV-2 to check if there's any replication. 
Eric, can you tell us what's so special about the four brain neurons? And is there a unique protocol to differentiate the IPS to different neural types? In terms of the protocol, um, every organoid has a unique protocol to kind of differentiate. Um, mainly it's providing the growth factors and you know other factors that are required um, by these cells to differentiate into the specific cell type, right? And, and those are usually found in the normal milieu of the organ. So for example, in the brain, you're gonna have, right, like uh, brain-derived neurotropic factors or like BDNF, like other brain factors um, that are gonna help differentiate the pluripotent stem cells. And this is like really a kind of an ongoing research field, right? I think people are trying to derive different cell types from different organs. Um, but I think one thing that's like the main challenge really is that they want to be able to create all the cell types of the specific organ, right? So like for us, mainly we have four brain neurons, um, but you know, you there might be other cells that are kind of supporting it, right? Like astrocytes, microglia, or endothelial cells, but we're not able to get all those kind of cell types. So I would say in terms of like the actual protocol, it's pretty simple um, it, it, you have to follow what kind of growth factors are required you have to have you know sterile techniques and i think the biggest challenge for me uh um, seeing so chug my my classmate grew most of these organoids and the biggest challenge really is how careful you have to be and how long you have to take care of them so like i said our organoids were 90 days old uh, and you can imagine coming in almost every day to change media for these cells for 90 days straight just to do one experiment. I think that's a, a big dedication. And um, I, I, I really admire uh, people who do organoid work all the time. Um, and I, you know, as a mouse researcher mainly, um, I have to say, uh, I don't even take care of my mice every day <laughs> like that. So that's, okay. that's, uh, that's a lot of work, Eric. So. Coming back to the results, the authors found that there was replication in the neuronal progenitors and a peak titer was observed within 12 hours. They also found that there was a cell death in disinfected cells. Next, the authors wanted to test the effectivity in a 3D in vitro model, which was a brain organoid derived from iPS cells. And similar to that was observed in the cells, the authors found that there were SARS-CoV-2 infected cells and a spread of infection was reported particles could be seen in the organoid body out of the endoplastic reticular-like structures. This hints towards the ability of SARS-CoV-2 to utilize the neural machinery to replicate. In summary, SARS-CoV-2 can infect neuronal progenitor cells, replicate, and cause death of these cells. Can I add something here? I, yeah. I just imagine because a paper like this gets into the press and the press makes a hype about it. Oh, you're, everybody's going to get infected in your brain by SARS-CoV-2, and suddenly people are even more hysterical. I wonder, I wonder if this might. I mean, if the press hasn't picked up on it, or not enough people know about this. Because I would think that people who are already hysterical about SARS-CoV-2, they would see something like, oh, brain infection. Now they got more things to worry about, even though it may not be as important, or may, may or may not be. Yeah, I think that's a very important point and something very hard to balance as like a scientist who, you know, is writing to show 
some sort of interesting scientific right phenomenon, but also we want to get the kind of story out to the scientific community, right?、Um, and as we all kind of know, what happened with like BioArchive and a lot of kind of different scientific papers this year,、um, the press took it and then I think ran with it in different like directions.、Um, so for our article specifically, I think we really try to tone down everything that was happening、um, and. Make sure we're very transparent with like the limitations of the study, right?、Um, and also highlighting the fact that,、um, and we'll go into it a little bit later, that even if we see human samples with the brain tissue infected, we're not saying this is happening to all the people. And you know, the samples that we're using were the sickest of the sickest people, right? And there are people that passed away, unfortunately, and we had the opportunity to get the brain from, and. Uh, more importantly,、uh, when the project was getting picked up by the press a little bit,、uh, we had an opportunity to work with the people who were writing those articles、um, to be able to make sure that it wasn't just sensational,、uh, sensationalism, and you know we just kind of try to keep that under control. But I agree, it's it's very hard, and for something that's kind of controversial or that something can, that can make people worry even more.、Um, We we definitely had that in mind as we were, you know, writing the project up. That's pretty good. But it's a good reason to go get vaccinated for people who are hesitant or reluctant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, severe infections can get you brain infections, <laughs> even in the end. Or may, maybe not. I don't. We don't, I don't think we understand how. Wh- why are certain people getting it and certain people not? Exactly. 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 So next, they wanted to know if certain cells of the organoid were more susceptible to infection or death.、Uh, to better understand the neurotropism of SARS-CoV-2, the authors used a single-cell sequencing approach to identify the transcriptional changes in the infected and the uninfected cells of the brain organoid. Then they confirmed the cell types in. Single cell sequencing by staining the cells with markers specific for various regions of the brain. Then they over,、uh, then by overlaying the SARS-CoV-2 genomic transcript with the single cell data, they would get an idea about which cells are being targeted by the virus. While there were some differences in infectivity, it looked like the virus could infect a variety of cells in the CNS, including. Cells、uh, like neurons, radial glia, and neuron neuron progenitor cells. Another question that the authors were interested in is to compare the transcriptomic change SARS-CoV-2 induces in CNS cells compared to Zika virus, which is a well-known neurotropic virus. Very surprisingly, there were no overlapping differential gene expressed,、uh, differentially expressed genes between Zika virus infected and SARS-CoV-2 infected CNS cells. While the Zika virus infected CNS induced type one interferon response, the SARS-CoV-2 infected CNS cells seem to upregulate the cell division, organelle fission, and Metabolic pathways, specifically related to the electron transport chain, they seem to be in a hypermetabolic state, which may show how the virus was hijacked 
uh, how, how the virus has hijacked the host machinery. I assume this change in metabolism is conductive, conducive of the replication of virus within the cells. And Eric, now I have two questions for you. First one is how can two viruses, which are both neurotropic, can induce such different response? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. So this is something that we don't get into very much detail because personally, we don't really know much about it either. Um, but you can think about uh, this complete right? This constant evolution of different viruses and the host. Um, and they like, right, they're trying to, the virus is trying to replicate and infect more. The host is trying to get rid of the viral infection. Um, and as they do that, they're evolving different mechanisms to either avoid the immune system or take advantage of the immune system. Um, so depending on, I think, what cells they were like meant to infect and what the cells are meant to actually do, um, the, the two are gonna have a very unique response. So for example, it's previously uh, known that neurons actually kind of have a dull uh, immune response in that like, you know, they're not barrier cells, mm -hmm. right? Like epithelial cells or immune cells. They're not professional antigen presenting cells like macrophages or dendritic cells or something like that. So, you know, they, they don't have like their main function is for like neuronal connectivity and stuff like that. And you can think about it as mm -hmm. uh, one cell can only do so much, right? They can't do everything exactly, in the yeah. body. So in that case, um, people have hypothesized that neurons are actually unable to invoke a sufficient immune response in a lot of like different viral infections. Um, mm -hmm. And that's one hypothesis of why maybe herpes virus can also go like latent in, in neurons. Mm -hmm. um, but it can also be that, you know, the virus has specific avoidance mechanisms um, that we haven't been able to identify. And for some reason, that avoidance mechanism is more pronounced in, you know, the host cell neurons, uh, for some example. Uh, because as we see in, 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 in our study and other studies before, Zika virus is able to induce a significant immune response, right, in, in neurons. Um, and we just showed that SARS-CoV-2 can't invoke a, a sufficient immune response. So it's really hard to kind of pinpoint to why, whether it's the host or, you know, it's the virus. It, mm -hmm. It's definitely got to be a combination of the two. And it's mm -hmm. kind of like a perfect storm, right, setting. Um, it's that this virus in the setting of neurons and the host factors that's expressed in the neurons and then the avoidance mechanism that's in SARS-CoV-2 is probably making it, you know, unable to invoke the immune response. And that would be a very interesting project on its own to further kind of study that. <laughs> that's for our audience. <laughs> <laughs> I was surprised here that two viruses, even, even if there's maybe very diverse viruses, but to our cells, I would think that in the list of your differentially expressed genes, a lot of these common antiviral genes would be upregulated just as a generic antiviral response. But based on your data, it didn't look like it. So that was quite interesting. And yeah, it may be something like you said, it could be the, how the way these viruses interact and it could be the host side and a combination of the pathogen side as well. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and as we all know, right, Zika viruses are flaviviruses, and then coronaviruses are coronaviruses. Um, so although they're similar in some ways, that that they're viruses, they have, you know, so many different characteristics that make them unique. Mm-hmm. True. So my second question is, what can be the consequences of such metabolic changes after a CNS infection? Right. So that was something that, you know, we were thinking about also. I think the metabolic changes, you can think about it in, in twofold. And this is the first time I really thought about it in this way. Like, usually we would think about the cells that are actually infected and they're going through a hypermetabolic stage. So then you can think about, you know, they might be more acidic, you know, they might have different, right? Um, like, uh, they might have different changes internally inside the cell themselves, right? Um, and then you can imagine, you know, all the proteins, all the whatever machinery that's inside the cell is designed to work optimally at a certain, right, temperature, certain pH, certain kind of setting. Um, so in that sense, you can have kind of detrimental effects to the cell itself, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where its normal processes are no longer be able to work at the optimal rate. But one thing that we thought was very interesting, and this kind of goes back to what uh, Eugenio was talking about, is we saw a lot of cell death, right? That, that was occurring inside these organoids. But what what we were shocked about really was that the cells that were dying were not the cells that were infected, but the cells that were neighboring these infected cells. Um, so that was very surprising to us. And when we looked at the, right, when we looked at the RNA sequencing data, and like you said, the cells that were infected were going through this hypermetabolic state, right? Mm-hmm. But then the cells that were surrounding it were actually going through more of a hypometabolic state and they were going like alternative metabolic pathways uh, because they were in a hypoxic, I guess, environment. So what that showed us was that the infected cells were actually kind of sequestering, right? All these, you know, resources Mm -hmm. um, that the cell or the organism or the organoid needed uh, making and kind of eventually starving out uh, its neighboring cells, causing them to be the ones that are dying. And this is like a very interesting kind of effect that, um, I don't know, I, I'm sure someone has noticed before, um, but I haven't really like thought about before I did this project. Um, and I think it's only really possible because like you said, the, the SARS-CoV-2 didn't invoke a sufficient immune response in these neuronal cells. Because otherwise, if they had right a huge type one interferon mm-hmm. response, those cells would just die, and then the yeah. viral particles were released and go to the next cells and next cells. Yeah, amazing answer. Yeah. So wait, 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 wait. This is so cool data. I cannot tell you because what 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 this is saying is there are infected cells that are selfishly hogging all the resources they are upregulating oxidative phosphorylation. That means they are also taking up most of the oxygen around the cell. So they get to be more dividing. They get to replicate more than the other cells who are not infected. So this is some sort, I'm just drawing a parallel to cancer, how cancer selfishly divide while creating a hypoxic environment where other cells cannot survive because there is lack of oxygen. So this is pretty cool data. I'm, I'm so hyped about this. 
<laughs> I love the way you uh, made a parallel to cancer. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a cancer researcher, I think, uh, at heart. And I never thought of it that way, but I think that that's a very great uh, explanation of this data. To summarize, SARS-CoV-2 is capable of infecting a wide array of CNS cells, and it includes a hyper, it induces a hypermetabolic program in the infected cell. And now that the authors have shown that SARS-CoV-2 can infect central nervous system, the author asked if the infection was dependent on AC2 receptor or angiotensin testing one converting enzyme two. And before we continue with the data, with the results, uh, Eric, can you tell us about this receptor and why it was important to look at? When we were first starting to work on this project, um, there was this huge kind of rush of everyone trying to look at how SARS-CoV-2 was infecting the body. So ACE2, uh, uh, the angiotensin one converting enzyme two, was actually a receptor that was identified for uh, SARS-CoV-1 back in, you know, like whenever that was, like 15, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and so we already knew that SARS-CoV-1 was infecting cells through this receptor and SARS-CoV-2 had the, a similar spike protein as SARS-CoV-1, right? That's why it's also named SARS-CoV-2. Um, so presumably everyone knew that this must be the main receptor that it's infecting. Uh, or infecting through. And then what happened was everyone was looking for ACE2 receptor expression in the body. And I, I think you guys can all remember there were a slew of papers in BioArchive looking at RNA-seq data to say ACE2 is expressed in this organ, so this organ might be susceptible, this organ might be susceptible, like it was everywhere. So I think, you know, naturally we wanted to make sure that you know, is ACE2 expressed in the brain or not? And I think that was important because there was kind of this big question about can it infect the brain um, if it doesn't have high enough, you know, receptor expression. And one thing that people were pointing to was that although there was like some RNA levels of ACE2 in the brain, uh, largely there was very low levels compared to the rest of the body. Um, and when you look at our data, so we also found a, a very similar effect for the organoid. We saw that in, when we looked at RNA levels, um, it was very, very low. And it, it likely, it looked like there was no ACE2 levels or you know, if, even if there was, it's so small, um, the virus might not be able to infect through it. But when we looked at the protein level in the organoid, we actually saw that there was pretty high detectable levels of um, ACE2 in, 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 the, um, in the organoid. Um, and I think uh, Tanu is gonna go through the data a little bit and, and we show that it's actually very important for the ACE2 receptor to be there uh, for the virus to infect into the organ and uh, or into the organoid. And this is kind of a getting ahead of myself, but in one of the the mouse models, the K18 mice, is a, a, a mouse that's expressing ACE, human ACE2 in, in the K18 promoter. Um, they made this mouse thinking that the K18 promoter would be localized to, right, it's keratin, so it would be localized to some of the mouse epithelial uh, lung cells. And 
what they've seen and what we've seen since then is that these mice actually are able to clear virus from the lung, but they have this huge encephalopathic uh, um, phenotype where the virus gets into the brain and then the entire brain lights up with virus. When you check for ACE2 levels, the brain is, I would say like a thousand to 10,000 times fold lower than the lung, but it doesn't matter. The brain is so much more susceptible. So the way now, uh, the way I see ACE2 levels being important for SARS-CoV-2 is more of a on or off switch. If it's present, even if it's very small, it'll let the virus get in and do its job. It's not about like how much is expressed or like how high it's expressed. And I think that was uh, a trap that a lot of us kind of fell into in the beginning. But since then, um, there's a lot of supporting data showing that you don't need the highest level of ACE2 for the virus to infect, so. Thank you, Eric. And as you mentioned, uh, the importance of ACE2 for infection uh, neuron cells and a given phenotype. Uh, then uh, the authors uh, ask about the human response. Uh, and we know that after infection, you get production of antibodies. And the authors wanted to know if there were antibody response against SARS-CoV-2 in the central nervous system of infected patients. And when analyzing cerebrospinal fluid from a patient hospitalized with COVID-19, they found a lot of IgG specific to the spike protein. And these antibodies were able to block SARS-CoV-2 infection in their organized model. So uh, this is really, a, Eric, this is really interesting data. Um, and I was wondering if we could find uh, antibodies against spike proteins in the central, uh, in the cerebrospinal fluid of vaccinated people or those who were asymptomatic or had mild disease. Yeah, that's an excellent question. This, this is actually one of my favorite experiments in the study, and we were so excited to see what the data showed uh, when we actually did the experiment. Um, to kind of answer your question specifically, it's I don't have a clear answer, but we can we can talk through it and think about the idea as a whole. Um, so there's two kind of thoughts of um, how antibodies and the CSF get there, right? So one is this idea that antibodies are being produced in the periphery, right? Like, you know, whenever you have any sort of immune response and then you have some sort of like inflammatory insult in the CNS and then you get BBB opening, like we talked about, and the antibodies are kind of sneaking in through, right? So the antibody is coming from outside in. But, um, and this is another paper I actually had an opportunity to work in um, where we took CSF and serum of patients with COVID-19 and we um, looked at, you know, T cell responses and antibody responses in the two compartments and how they were similar and how they were different. Um, and what we saw was that there was actually a divergent immune response occurring in the central nervous system compared to the periphery. So for example, while we were seeing antibodies present in both the CSF and the serum of these patients against SARS-CoV-2, um, the epitope it was targeting on the spike protein was actually different in the serum and in the CSF. So what that I would say is saying is that the antibodies can also be produced very locally somewhere in the CNS um, that's being secreted into the CSF. 
Yeah, that looks like a polyclonal response. Another clone, but in a, could be a, a CSF-specific clone. That's pretty cool. Do we know about lymph node-like structures in the CNS? Yeah, so that's a that's an awesome question. Um, so some people think you know you can form these tertiary lymphoid right TLOs uh, structures in like the dura of the. Um, I don't know if the audience knows right. The dura is like a tissue that's covering right the central nervous system. Um, so people think it, it might be happening there. Um, also, you know, other people have shown very specific kind of immune circuits in the cervical lymph nodes with the CNS. Um, yeah, so you, you guys can also check out that other paper. Okay. Um, it just came up, I think, and we we find that yeah, there's a divergent you know immune response in the CNS. So it's pretty interesting. Um, yeah, and then kind of the last part, I, I don't think I clearly answered. Um, in the asymptomatic or mild disease, I think it's possible, but I'm definitely biased in thinking um, that CNS antibodies are a CNS specific kind of phenotypes. So if they are not having a huge immune response in the CNS, they likely won't find a lot of antibodies there. And actually that would tell us whether this is a leakage from the periphery or if this is something being produced within the CNS. Right, you could have a correlation. Had they do they have virus in the CNS, and do they have antibodies in the CNS? And that would be a cool study. But at the same exactly. time, I, I wonder if, as you said before, that this lumbar puncture—it's a very invasive process, and asymptomatic people are not very uh, well sick, right? So that I wonder if they would be open or volunteering to come to the <laughs> clinic and get their lumbar punctured for a study because that is way too invasive in my opinion yeah definitely i think that that definitely makes it harder um so we do i think what you you were pointing towards is very very important and we do that exact study in mice uh, where we localize infection in the brain only or in the lung only, or make the infection happen both in two compartments at, at the simultaneously and in, in mice, and show that the antibody production in the CSF is very specific to, you know, brain infection only. Um, and in addition, uh, we were able to actually show that. So, like clinically, when we think about all all, all of these like neurotropic viruses or neurotropic whatever infections. We usually try to do a qPCR of the CSF to find the virus itself, and that's supposed to be the gold standard of if there's a brain infection or not. Um, but what we showed in that same mouse experiment is that the antibody production or like the antibody count in the CSF is a much more sensitive test than looking for the viral PCR, because often you know it's so diluted in in the CSF or you know in the serum you're not going to be able to find it necessarily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Th thank you. Thank you, Eric. So in next figure, the authors are asking the question, is SARS-CoV-2 neuroinvasive in vivo in mice? Right? Uh, so after this exciting discovery with the organoid models, the next step was to check the neuroinvasiveness of SARS-CoV-2 in a mouse model. Uh, the mouse they used, as Eric said, they expressed ACE2 under the K18 promoter. So it's under keratinocyte specific uh, or organs that, ex that express uh, keratin 
mostly would express this. And uh, Carrick, you said these particular mice would not have ACE2 in their nervous system. So it, I mean, they have very low levels in the brain. Okay. Uh, like, so by RNA, it seems like they won't have a lot of ACE2, but as it figures, um, you don't need a lot of ACE2 for infection. And what we see is a huge infectious potential of okay. SARS-CoV-2 in the brain. So back to the results, the mice were intranasally administered with the virus and the authors saw increased viral titers in the mice brain. There was a light sheet microscopy imaging and clear map that showed that the virus was spread throughout the forebrain. There are patches of virus in the cortex, but no infection was observed in the most of the cerebellum. Next, they focused on the cortical vasculature because it can be af affected by the neural cells expressing the viruses. Consistent with their hypothesis, they found disrupted vasculature around virus-infected regions of the brain. But how is this virus infection of the CNS different from that of the lungs? To check that, the researchers expressed human ACE2 in mouse lungs as well as mouse brain and then infected mice with SARS-CoV-2 either intranasally or intraventricularly. The difference was that the CNS infection, the mice had faced weight loss and death but not in lungs only infection. Uh, Eric, could this mean that the neuroinvasiveness is more lethal than the pulmonary infection? Yes and no. I think in in our mouse setting, it's a little contrived system, right? We we really are trying to show that CNS infection is possible by externally, you know, overexpressing these receptors and showing that that's possible. Um, and in the mice, definitely, uh, the brain infection is more lethal. And we can imagine that being the case, right? In, in terms of like anything, uh, the brain kind of controls many parts of the body and it's not like a local, it's, it's not only a local effect it's having. Also the brain is like confined into a very tight space. So any small insult has like a very big outcome. Um, so in that term, we definitely show that neuroinvasiveness is more lethal. However, we're like definitely, and this goes back to what we were talking about, making sure the press doesn't, you know, mm -hmm. misunderstand it. We're definitely not trying to make the case that the brain infection is causing more deaths than the lung infection. This is primarily a, a pulmonary, you know, respiratory virus. Um, and we see the, you know, the detrimental effects that it has once it gets into the lungs, right, in patients. I think one thing that we really wanted to highlight was the mouse kind of model of SARS-CoV-2 doesn't fully recapitulate the, the lung pathologies that occurs in you know patients, right? But at the same time, we wanted to show that if there is any kind of central nervous system in, uh, involvement, that can be also very detrimental. So mm -hmm. that's something to consider and think about. Okay. So just to summarize what you're saying is the pulmonary disease is still the major way it hurts people. The, it hurts people. Yep. <laughs> neuroinvasive is is secondary, but yeah, can be can be lethal, but not as much as pulmonary. Yeah, and we don't know how how frequent or how severe it actually is in patients. You know, mm -hmm. the neuroinvasion, um, and this is just like a proof of concept that it can be very dangerous, at least using a mouse model. If there's any data of those people that uh, actually. Uh, uh, 
dead because of a, a, a COVID uh, uh, disease, if all of them are have a infection in the in the brain, you know, it, that would be really interesting to know if all the people that die also have infection in the brain. That would be really interesting, and you could be like a, a, a factor of, of of prediction of the of the progression of the disease as well. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, and there have been studies that kind of try to look at that. Um, I think, you know, some studies have shown up to like 30% of the patients in their autopsy like group having some sort of viral titer or viral RNA um, present in the central nervous system. But it's also like a, there's like a couple caveats to thinking about this. It's like a chicken and egg thing, right? Uh, like we said, you know, patients who are getting intubated, having these severe cytokine storms, they have more permeable BBB, so they might be getting the virus into their brain eventually just because everything is more open. Okay. It might be that they're getting into that space because they had the infection originally, but we'll, we'll never know. Um, the other thing is even the lung, I think you know a lot of patients' lungs are not SARS-CoV-2 positive. At the time, they're like, dead right because sometimes the virus clears out or you know your sampling is you know you know you're only sampling a small tissue amount so by the time you're doing the autopsy and whatever you might not see it um so kind of same goes out for the brain i think it's it's hard to know that um it's there or not. like if it's there you can say it's there but the absence of it also is hard to prove right like any other mm -hmm. good science yeah yeah for so I would think based on what you said about 30% people who die from COVID-19 have a presence of the virus in their CNS. So that would mean we are missing some factor that differentiates why some, but not everybody has it. So it's, it's exactly. still something that we don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that range is like really different uh, de depending on what kind of study uh, on, on which study was like, you know, performed. So I think that's the highest range. I think 30% is what I saw, but other studies show like 10% or even less, so. Okay, yeah, probably a lot more things that we don't know. <laughs> Always, right? Mm -hmm. Like any fun, fun and exciting science. After their proof of concept in brain organoids and mouse model, they finally, the final study was done in COVID-19 patients who demised after suffering from severe COVID-19. Immunohistochemistry of their brain tissue showed presence of virus in their brain. Similar to what they saw in the organoids, the virus were localized in hotspots inside the cells. The cells surrounding the infected cells uh, showed signs of tissue damage and localized cell death. Infarts were present in subcortical white matter and not in the cortex. And uh, Eric, I'd like your thoughts about why it was present in the subcortical white matter, but not in the cortex. Can you also tell us what's the difference between these two organs? <laughs> because I have zero idea about <laughs> why are they important, cortical and the subcortical regions of the brain. The cortex is where um, like the cell bodies are, right? Like the neuronal cell bo bodies are. And then the subcortical white matter is kind of, you know, it's white because of the myelin. It's like where, you know, the information is transduced. Um, so I don't have a really good answer why we see more infarcts in one or the other. 
the susceptibility of it is different. I know in um, when we talked with the pathologist and stuff like that, they said um, it, it was true that you know most people were seeing kind of more infarcts occurring in the subcortical white matter uh, compared to the cortex. I think it might also just be the tissue architecture and right like the susceptibility of certain regions um, to another. Um, but this also kind of brings a like an important kind of caveat to our study also is that you know we we look at neuronal cell infection right and the neuronal cell bodies are going to be mostly in the cortex actually right so mm -hmm. the fact that we're seeing the infarcts more in the white matter um there is a gap in kind of like right what we find and what we're seeing like physiologically so you know, we, we can't make the complete claim that, you know, what we see in the organoids are completely true in, in the human. But what we do kind of see indirectly is that we see these metabolic changes um, in the mouse model where we actually have endothelial cells and, you know, we don't have it in organoids. We do see vascular remodeling, right, due to this metabolic change. Um, and, you know, the vascular remodeling can affect kind of you know, what these infarcts are like the susceptibility of the organ itself. I um, mean, that's kind of how we modeled and think, thought about these three different situations kind of occurring together. And just out of curiosity, was the virus tighter in the subcortical white matter versus the cortex any different, which led to the infarcts being different or were they same, but still the infarcts were different? Yeah, so this study was really hard to do. So at the moment, um, at the time when we were doing these studies, uh, people were very afraid of doing full autopsies on patients. Um, even if, you know, like when we think about autopsies, right, the whole patient is fixed, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you, you perfuse them. So in the US, um, they were not performing uh, autopsies of the brain because in order to do that you need a bone saw and that aerosolizes a lot of the tissue okay. um so like at our institution they told us there's no way you're getting any brain tissue um mm -hmm. but we had these collaborators in france um that were actually performing these autopsies um, uh, um and the only way to get any of this tissue back to the u.s or um, to have them completely fixed and like paraffin embedded, like for staining purposes. Um, so we were not able to do a lot of like techniques. So the only things for validation we were able to do were um, sectioning and doing like immunohistochemistry. Um, so we usually found it in, you know, where the infarcts were, the virus, and sometimes in the cortical region. Um, we don't have like a absolute number in terms of right like mm -hmm. viral titers or you know, even pcr results just because of the nature of the samples we got um, but i would say it was more prevalent in the subcortical white matter but we definitely saw neuronal bodies also infected in the cortex of a, a patient but it's definitely amazing all the work you did even having all these limiting conditions so <laughs> yeah i mean and and you guys can definitely see by the sheer number of 
people that were involved um, on the author list. And that's just, you know, a, a small sample of people that like really mobilized during a short amount of time period to be able to make this project happen. Um, yeah, I, I, and it was a lot of fun. I think it was a lot of moving parts at, at, at one given moment, um, but I'm very glad that all these people were involved in helping us making this happen, so. So it reminds me it's not related to the paper, but my lab ordered uh, uh, something to work with in our lab in June, and it just got delivered yesterday in our lab. So I was wondering <laughs> the moving process, especially during the time of COVID was so difficult yeah, and so unpredictable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Coming back to the paper, most interestingly, the brain region infected with virus did not have any lymphocyte or leukocyte infiltration. This result is contrasting to that of other neurotropic viruses because CNS infection by SARS-CoV-2 does not induce an immune response. Uh, so why do you think that the CNS infection may be more lethal, although it does not induce an immune response? Yeah, so this kind of like lack of lymphocyte and leukocyte infiltration is something that other groups have kind of seen. And in, also with the SARS-CoV-2 kind of autopsy studies, um, there are cases, you know, where we do see more lymphocytes and leukocytes, but it's just not comparable to what we imagine uh, Hmm. something when we see a viral infection in the brain right yeah. when we think about like herpes encephalitis or zika virus or rabies or something you see a huge influx of uh, immune cells so when we think about right like lethality or disease or whatever um as the audience probably knows there's especially in the case of viral infections there's there's kind of two things that we worry about right we think about the actual infection itself, how much damage can the virus do to the cells that are you know, uh, primarily in that space, but also kind of the, the, I would say like the side effects of what an immune cell can do to the tissue through like inflammatory responses and stuff like that. Um, so this would argue that maybe you know, SARS-CoV-2 damage to the CNS tissue might actually be more through like a direct effect or like that metabolic kind of secondary effect. Um, that but makes sense. I think, yeah, but definitely more studies would have to be done to see if like, you know, do CD8s or CD4s have pathologic features like they do in the case of Zika virus, which was actually a project that was also done in our lab. Um, by a, a, a professor now, a Professor Harado, a long time ago. Um, so that would be an interesting kind of, another very interesting research question for, you know, uh, an excited grad student to pursue. Yeah, that does make <laughs> sense that future. you don't have immune response, but the virus so, itself is also killing neighboring cells. So that would itself cause pathology. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, which is what we primarily see in the organoid, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. There's no immune cells in the organoid, which is another caveat to the organoid. Yeah. But you yeah. still see an increase of that. So. And uh, not exactly related to the study, but uh, 
do you know how this virus can shed out the from the CNS or does it even the virus which are infecting the CNS even shed, get shed out? Like does the the brain infect the cells? Does it come outside of the CNS? Like the if the there are viruses which are infecting our gut, they shed out through the feces. If it is infecting our respiratory system, it comes out through the sneezing or cough. Can the infect virus infecting the CNS shed out of the body in any way? What if your brain bursts one day? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that's the like a zombie zombie movie. Yeah, right? zombie ants. <laughs> it reminds me of the cordyceps and zombie ants. <laughs> but yeah, on a serious note, <laughs> uh, we should definitely make a zombie movie in the future. But on a serious <laughs> note, I think. It's more limited to the CNS, I would believe. Um, I think you can get into the CSF, and from the CSF, you can get into the systemic circulation, and from the systemic circulation, you can, you know, pee it out or poop it out or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's no like direct kind of exposure or exchange from the central nervous system to the the outside world, and I think that's a very unique property of the central nervous system, and that's something that I. Actually, like doing research on like outside of SARS-CoV-2, um, and you know, anytime in the future, if you guys want to talk more about that, also we can we can definitely dive into how the immune system in the brain is different than the rest of the body. So we'll keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> and now that we have reviewed some of the important points of the paper, let's talk about uh, uh, some points I have found interesting for a, a moral discussion. And I have to be honest. Um, most of the points I, I uh, pitched out, we have talked through the through the results part, but there were actually two points I would like to hear about you, and it would be, um, can you tell us about the long-term consequences of neuroinvasion of those patients that actually survive uh, COVID-19? Yeah, so I think this is a very important topic that's kind of circulating around um, the globe is circulating around globally as you know vaccines are more available and patients are healing and you know the world is healing right uh, what the long-term kind of effects of covid are and studies have shown that patients have up to up to another again like anywhere from like 30 to 80 percent of patients have some sort of long-term neurological sequelae um, after covid 19. And this can be anywhere from like more psychiatric, right? Which is, you know, anxiety, depression. Uh, we've all heard about kind of COVID brain or like COVID fog. Um, and that can be, you know, just decreases in cognitive function or brain function. Um, we also know some people have these very, very extended loss of smell, right? And there's um, a a great study that recently got published uh, showing that that's due to direct infection of kind of olfactory neurons um, that are present. So, you know, thinking about all of these kind of neurological long-term effects, you know, we can imagine that, you know, a subpopulation of these people had some sort of neuroinvasion uh, and, you know, even the ischemic damage or the microinfarcts could have a like a long-term effect in their brain function or whatever it may be. Almost like what a stroke would have, right? Like when people have strokes, people's outcome from the stroke is very variable. Um, and 
once again, I want to make sure that, you know, I kind of relate to everyone. Like in no way we're saying anyone with a, a neuronal symptom has had brain infection of SARS-CoV-2. And that's like not the case that we're making. But I think, like we said, the symptoms that people are displaying is very variable. And I think, you know, some of those patients might have had, um, you know, more direct effects like this. And, and it's, you know, we're having ongoing projects in the lab that are also looking at kind of indirect effects of, you know, SARS-CoV-2 infections that can have on the brain. So for example, something like cytokine storms can have, you know, direct effects on the brain through the cytokines that are being produced peripherally. Um, in the antibody story, story that I briefly discussed, um, we showed that some of the antibodies that are being produced um, along with that, um, patients are producing autoantibodies against neuronal antigens um, in, in the brain. So it, it might be a, like a subsequent kind of auto, like an autoantibody induced, you know, encephalitis or some sort of disease like that. So yeah, I mean, there's like so much more to study. Um, and I think the more we know about kind of exactly what patients are related to, you know, which are the biological symptoms or the biological phenomena, we can like help direct therapies or, you know, strategies to help these patients more carefully and specifically. And I think that's really the goal of like all research and our research uh, in particular. For sure. And Eric, just one last point uh, regarding all of this uh, heterogeneity of, of responses. Do you know if there's any factors affecting neurotropics between individuals? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I have no idea if there's any factors. I think it makes it hard to study because, you know, you guys brought up a great point. Why is it so hard to study central nervous system infections? We don't have the right tools. We don't have regular sampling of, you know, people's CSF. So in order to do something like uh, what you're uh, proposing, like a big epidemiological study, we need to have the population basis, uh, like a clear population basis and a large population basis, right? And I think we just don't have the capability of doing that. And, you know, moving forward for not even just SARS-CoV-2, um, but any viral infections or even any neurological disease. I think as we kind of move forward in technologies that can assess brain health and brain diseases, I think we'll have more opportunities to be able to understand different factors that are you know, affecting individuals um, in cases like neurotropism of a virus or et cetera. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I think with this, we can move on with the summary of the episode. Before diving into the summary, I would really like to emphasize the point that how much uh, benefit it has been to the scientists that the SARS-CoV-2 virus, when it came up as a novel coronavirus, was so much similar to the SARS-CoV-1, which came up in 2003. And that's one of the reasons why all the vaccines or the studies was so possible to do so much faster and uh, while browsing about more about SARS coronavirus one I also found an article which was similar to yours but it hinted towards possible 
CNS infections by SARS-CoV-1. I don't know if you went uh, know about it, but it's a study from China in 2004, and the title of the study is "Possible Central Nervous System Infection by SARS-CoV-2." And I found it really interesting how similar these two viruses are, and maybe diving into more studies with SARS-CoV-1 can help us solve riddles about SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, I, I I saw that paper and they they had an experiment that they did in that paper that I really wish I could have tried.、Um, so what they did was they got the brain of a patient infected with SARS-CoV-1, they mushed it up,、wow. isolated virus, live virus from the brain, and cultured it with like a viral cell or something, and then took an EM image to show that the virus、oh. from the brain was still replicating、um, outside. <laughs> um, that would have been kind of icing on the cake for、uh, for me as a scientist. Yeah, that would have been awesome. Wait, wait, what kept <laughs> you from doing this? What what was the reason you couldn't do it? I couldn't, I couldn't get you know healthy tissue or like live brain tissue、okay. uh, from a patient because anything that we got、um, the patient samples had to be fixed、uh, before、uh, we got it. Yeah.、Mm-hmm. Maybe in two three years from now, when it won't be like everyone will be vaccinated and it won't be so much of a concern, you people may be doing more studies on live tissues. So coming back to the summaries, although COVID nineteen is considered to be primarily a respiratory disease, SARS CoV two affects multiple organ systems, including the central nervous system. Unfortunately, there were no consensus on the consequences of CNS infections until this article. This paper provides evidence for SARS-CoV-2's neuroinvasive capacity and an unexpected consequence of direct infection of neurons by SARS-CoV-2. Here are some take-home points for you: Using human brain organoids,、uh, Eric and colleagues. Observed clear evidence of infection with accompanying metabolic changes in infected and neighboring neurons. However, no evidence for type one interferon responses were detected. Neuronal infection can be prevented by blocking ACE2 with antibodies or by administering cerebrospinal fluid from a COVID-19 patient. Using mice overexpressing Human ACE2. The researchers demonstrated that COVID SARS-CoV-2 neuroinvasion、uh, is possible in vivo. They also detected SARS-CoV-2 in cortical neurons in autopsies from patients who died of COVID-19, and noted that there were pathological features associated with infection with minimal immune cell infiltrates. Thanks a lot, Tanu. And I think this would be a good time to wrap up our session, unless anybody else has anything to add. Okay, so this this episode may as well be called "Bunch of Immunologists Learn Neuroscience from Eric on Zoom," <laughs> because that was mostly it. More than SARS-CoV-2, I learned so much about neuroscience. And also, while reading this paper, I had no idea what are some protein markers or on neuronal cells or surrounding cells, and I learned so much from this paper. It's pretty cool. 
way outside what I usually read. So yeah, very good, good experience for me. And thanks Eugenio Tanu for joining me today. And thanks a lot, Eric, for helping us out, navigate through this paper. It was such an amazing paper and such nice uh, conclusions. I hope, like, we're sure this is going to propagate the science ahead. And now we know more about this virus than we knew before this paper was out. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun talking to you guys. Um, and please, hand me over anytime for another paper. I'd be happy to join. Sure. Oh, for sure. We are, I, I am going to put a uh, <laughs> hit list for the next paper out there. And I'll call you whenever <laughs> you have another publication. And to all our viewers and listeners, thanks a lot for listening. You can check us out on antibodies.org for our podcast, for our journal clubs or the blogs. We also have a new um, segment called the Career Talks where we bring in professionals to talk about more careers in the academic and industrial field. We had somebody talk to us about startups in biosciences in our last episode. And in the next episode, we'll have the the founder of Pedromics, the famous uh, person who makes comics in science. I'm really a big fan of him. And he's coming over in June. You guys can check it out. Check us out for the Antibodies Org. You'll see the information about him. And with that, we'll sign off. Thank you all for listening. Bye-bye. Bye, thank you. Bye.